a content warning before we jump into today's episode. This conversation is a heavy but really important one. We discuss issues regarding grooming, child sexual abuse, eating disorders, self-harm and suicide, and therefore it may be triggering for some of our listeners. We also understand that given recent news events and the current climate, this is a really difficult time for sexual assault survivors. We are thinking of you, we are with you, and help is available at 1-800-RESPECT. Shameless Media and Grace Tame want to use this episode to platform the incredible work of Bravehearts, a child safety foundation dedicated to preventing child sexual assault and exploitation in Australia. One of the areas he went wrong is in underestimating how, how much I was loved and how powerful real love is because despite the years that it's taken me to rebuild trust in myself and with other people, because of the relentless loving, the pure, genuine love of my family, I have been able to reconnect with myself and reconnect with other people by re-establishing trust. Hello and welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the absolute force that is Grace Tame. When Grace was just 15 years old, she was repeatedly groomed and raped by a 58-year-old maths teacher who taught at her Tasmanian high school and who was eventually found guilty and jailed. While her perpetrator was allowed to speak about his crimes with the media, Grace legally wasn't. She was prevented by law from sharing her story with the world. So she decided to do something about it. Together with journalist and activist Nina Fennell, the duo created the Let Her Speak campaign, which sought to overturn gag laws in Tasmania, the Northern Territory, and more recently, Victoria. Grace's voice has been so powerful and so necessary in the space of law reform that in January, she was named our 2021 Australian of the Year. We were so grateful to chat with such an incredible young person and could not think of anyone more passionate, educative and influential to interview on International Women's Day. So, here's Grace. Grace Tame, welcome to Shameless in Conversation. We are so stoked to have you. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm very excited. Grace, we were just saying before we jumped on and recorded that it has been a huge couple of weeks for you. Insane. How are you feeling? I'm feeling feeling lots of things I mean I think first and foremost just full of hope and positivity because you know we're witnessing this incredible paradigm shift of attitudes towards this previously under discussed topic of sexual assault and specifically child sexual abuse you know it's a really heavy really uncomfortable topic and the award of me is not so much an award for me it's more of a a symbol of progress I guess for the community and it's 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 celebrating all survivors it's recognizing how important this issue is bringing it to the forefront elevating the platform and I'm just like I'm blown away by it of course as an individual as well considering that I was abused 11 years ago now and as you guys both explained off air you both have stories, whether it's sexual assault or, or mental illness or some other kind of struggle. When you have that and you're in that 
you can't really see past it. And so to be here now, recognised in this way, with this platform and all this potential at my fingertips to work with the community, the potential that the community has right now, like it's incredible. Grace, we can't wait to hear all about your story. We are such huge fans of yours and we consider ourselves so lucky to have this next 40 minutes with you. But let's go straight back to the very beginning. What were you like as a child? What do you remember from your childhood? I'm back to my childhood, me. When I was a kid, I was full of love and life and energy. I was very much a go-getter, very active, and I just loved to apply myself either academically or in sport, but I just love the outdoors. I love spending time with my family and friends because I'm I'm just driven by human connection and, and connection with the outdoors, connection with wildlife, that sort of thing. So yeah, I was just like a, a little pocket rocket and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like full of enthusiasm and sense of humor and always a glass half full kind of little kid. And that's the way I am now. But that was sort of muffled when I was abused and for almost a decade after. Talk to us about those high school years before you turned 15. Like what kind of student were you? What do you remember of those early years of high school? Did you like school? Yeah, no, I always loved school. So like I was saying, when I was when I was a kid and, you know, especially in primary school, like I really thrived because I love learning and I love like learning with other people. And, and so I thought school was great. You know, I had a lot of friends. Most of my friends were guys. I played soccer and I was the only girl on a soccer team. I just had a great, I had a great time and yeah, I really applied myself academically. And then I moved to an all girls school and it's not that it was the fault of any individual necessarily, but the the culture of an all-girls school, that kind of environment, is very different. There's different values. And unfortunately, there's a lot more emphasis on us as women, you know, in society to focus on our image and things like that. And, and I'd not really given that much of a thought growing up. And not only is it naturally sort of when you hit those early teen years that those things as a woman come up, but but when when you're constantly like when you were surrounded by girls so it's it's even more so that's heightened and so yeah in my early high school years like year seven and eight I I was still applying myself a lot academically and I played lots of different sports I did cross country water polo soccer still you know all those things so I was always doing a lot and very occupied but then the the sort of the focus started to change in in conversation and things like that, you know, and, and the pressures started to change. What was important to people around me was different to what I had thought to be important. You know, unfortunately, like the gossip culture and, and, and all of that, which I, I don't like to engage in, I, I find that very hard to navigate. I'm also, and this isn't widely known, but I'm also high-functioning autistic, so my social skills <laughs> when it gets to the like the fine details, the nuances where especially when people have hidden agendas, I'm really bad at picking up on that because I genuinely I want to see the best in people. Again, this is another thing, a side note that made me vulnerable to to grooming and abuse. But anyway, when those that shift sort of started to happen with values and, you know, around especially around the superficial sort of things, I really started to struggle. I'd be always been very petite and because I'm also a perfectionist as well, I started to become very concerned that I was, you know, you know, that I had to maintain like small size. And concurrently, there was another thing happening, which was a, a resurfacing of a traumatic memory from when I was about six years old and, and uh, I was molested by an older child. And so I was 
dealing with that and there were other situations going on in my home life that contributed to some sort of instability. And that's when I really started struggling with eating and restrictive eating, which eventually snowballed into full-blown, very severe anorexia, which I still struggle with to this day. But that, that kicked into gear probably when I was about 12, 13. The year 2010 was a year that really completely changed your life. You were 15 and you found yourself in a class with a high school teacher who was 58 years old. That teacher groomed you and abused you. We don't really want to go into like the super nitty gritty details because I imagine it's incredibly traumatizing and upsetting to go through it again and again in your mind. But can you tell us the very first preliminary signs maybe that something wasn't quite right or that this person wasn't just a teacher, they were also potentially a predator? It wasn't obvious to me, no, in the outset. He'd actually taught me in year nine during the height of my anorexia. So I was actually hospitalized in 2009 in April and I spent six weeks there. And after I came out of hospital, I was on an outpatient program and I also had to have all my meals supervised at school. So the staff at the school throughout that year were aware of my condition and that carried on through to 2010 as well when I relapsed in 2010 after I was taken off the outpatient program because I was really not being treated for the reality that underpinned the eating disorder which was the sexual abuse that I hadn't reconciled so in April of 2010 I relapsed with anorexia and I was taken to the doctor by my parents one morning that just so happened to be a morning where the rest of my year group, so the rest of year 10, was actually off campus for a driving instruction course that I had missed and because I was like not very attentive at that point, you know, distracted by anorexia and all that sort of stuff. But I'd actually I'd missed that memo essentially. And so after my doctor's appointment that morning, I came back to campus and there was nobody else from my grade to be seen. So I was walking around aimlessly in the courtyard when I passed this teacher who knew me because he'd taught me the year before and he was wondering why I was on campus when the rest of year 10 was not there. And I explained that I'd been to a doctor's appointment and he played it off as like he didn't know what what it was about and just casually invited me to come and speak to him in his office. And so I did and we had a conversation and he was asking me about the doctor's appointment and so very unwittingly, you know, as you do when you're 15 and you're talking to a person of authority at school, you just answer the questions, you know. And I didn't think anything of it because, in fact, I went home that day and and I wasn't trying to hide anything. I, I told my parents directly that I had had this conversation with this teacher and they thought that was a bit odd especially because in the days that followed, this teacher asked me again to come and speak with him and we had more conversations and he drew more information out of me, information that I offered up not thinking that it would be used against me because that's you don't have any frame of reference when you're a child. You don't know that, you know what I mean? And, and like I said before, I'm always thinking the best in people. I'm not thinking like what's their hidden agenda here, you know, like I'm taking everything at face value usually. I'm not I'm not trying to second guess or or anything like that. So so I just assumed he had good intention and he, he assured me he had good intention. 
you know, he presented as being very supportive in, in his language, in his, in his conversation. And it wasn't until I'd had a few conversations with him, again, conversations that I immediately told my parents about when I got home as I wasn't hiding anything. And it was after those early conversations that my parents actually had a meeting with the school because they as adults who had a concept of grooming and we thought this was odd and especially my father who's also a male teacher, you know, he thought this was very odd and both my parents had meetings with the school to keep him away from me. And there was a period when he did, he did sort of stay away from me but then it was in June of 2010 because I was in a, a school production that had rehearsals on weekends that was the way that he managed to find his way back in was he came to a rehearsal in in June of 2010 he actually pulled me out of the rehearsal to reignite the the conversation Grace, you mentioned your mum just before and your dad too, but I remember we were just watching recently a video that you did with the ABC when you kind of spoke out publicly for the first time and your mum said in that interview that she suspected something was wrong and, like you said, even approached the school. But as you mentioned as well, the tentacles of sexual abusers mean they push you away from everyone around you. What was your relationship with your parents like at that time? Well, I just really want it to be known and understood that my parents are the most phenomenal people and they have always loved me and I've never questioned whether or not they love me. But as per the nature of mental illness, especially something like anorexia, which is very alienating, very, very difficult to deal with, the relationships that I was having with my parents at the time and just coupled with the fact that when you're 15, when you're a teenager, whether you're a boy or a girl, you're having fights with your parents. At that time, it's difficult. You're going through this phase where everything's new but you also somehow think that you know everything (laughs) and so there was we were at odds there was a lot of tension there and the abuser my abuser saw this he saw this and he capitalized on it and he drove further wedges in between myself and each of my parents and all of my other support networks as well he very meticulously broke those down and uh, attempted to completely dissolve them What compelled you to want to reach out and tell people in your life what was going on? I imagine you put a lot of trust into someone to share a story like this with them when you are a teenager and you are so vulnerable. You did reach out. One of the very first people you told was another male teacher. Why did you choose to confide in him? That's right. Well, first and foremost, like throughout the abuse, the teacher actually boasted about other other girls that he had been with. So I knew that I wasn't his first target. And like I said earlier, I'm driven by human connection. I love people and I just am, you know, always wanting to put people at ease and wanting to make sure that people are okay and safe and protected. So that was the first motivation was was knowing that there was this predator that existed, you know, who was abusing me and that, that needed to be dealt with. There was that, but then also there's this want to educate because there's so little understanding of the, the psychological manipulation that goes on in, in, in prolonged sexual abuse, especially of children. And it's the same in domestic violence as well. Like we've got these pretty black and white concepts, I think, you know, in society of like good and bad when it comes to physical stuff, like people accept that rape is, is categorically wrong. The same with domestic violence, it's, it's wrong. But then you talk, talk about things like maintaining control or coercive control or grooming, you know, and people just don't have a grasp of it so there was that element as well and the reason that I specifically told this male teacher is because I knew from his past actions 
that he I need to stop myself there and, and actually name him because he's he's an absolute legend. His name is Dr. William Simon and he should be celebrated. But I told him because I knew from his past actions that he valued people above policy and individuals above the institution. And he was, you know, he was a proud gay man as well. So I, you know, I knew that he'd also been the subject, I'm, I'm sure, in his life of judgment, negative judgment. So yeah, that was the motivation behind that. What role did his believing you play in sort of helping you survive? I mean, it was hugely pivotal because he didn't question me at all. And that that initial sort of disclosure is is so important for survivors because so much of the abuse, and again, I come back to the psychological manipulation element, so much of that psychological manipulation is about destroying your trust and your ability to make judgments not only about other people but of yourself. So when you're riddled with self-doubt like that, which is by design of the predator, they want you to feel like you don't understand what's going on and that you don't know yourself and that you're crazy you know, so to have that initial disclosure be one of such implicit understanding and support of belief, that was pivotal for me. And he he actually set up a meeting with the school principal and then from there the police were called. Now, I have to also explain that I was only 16 when I told this teacher and I confided in this teacher, which makes me a bit of an anomaly because on average, it takes a survivor of child sexual abuse 23 years to actually speak out about their abuse because, and this is my understanding, it's because of the impact of grooming because it is that insidious and effective that it stays with you long after the physical abuse actually stops the programming, the recalibration of your whole brain and perception of everything and of yourself, it's huge. You know, and so when I did report my abuser to police, I was I was in this just awful kind of cognitive dissonance mindset where I was aware that I was I had been mistreated in such a horrendous, horrific way. But I was also still defending the teacher because I was still riddled with self-doubt and guilt and shame as per his programming. I mean, what comes to my mind first is how do you still be a teenager? Like is it possible to hold on to any form of innocence or just teenage joy when you've had so much stripped away from you? Uh, I was completely destroyed. You know, I'm not going to lie. That was, it was ripped away. But, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky because so many survivors are targeted, first of all, because they're already isolated and they don't have strong supportive networks around them. I'm lucky in that I did. And I think that my abuser went, one of the areas he went wrong is in underestimating how, how much I was loved and how powerful real love is because despite the years that it's taken me to rebuild trust in myself and with other people, because of the relentless loving, the pure, genuine love of my family, I have been able to reconnect with myself and reconnect with other people by reestablishing trust. 
so many survivors out there do not have that. And that's all the more reason why I'm eager for people out there listening who have more resources and who have more support to keep doing this sort of work and to keep empowering people who don't have the same privileges, I suppose. Coming up after the break, Grace explains her relationship with rage. But first, a word from today's charity partner. Zara being International Women's Day today, we have decided to donate this ad space to spotlight the incredible work of Bravehearts, Australia's leading child protection advocate dedicated to preventing child sexual assault and exploitation. This has to be one of the most important organisations we can spread awareness about because the team at Bravehearts do such incredible work. Founded in 1996, Braveheart services, including conducting personal safety education programs for children and helming a national 1800 information and support line for those seeking support and advice. If that's you, you can call Bravehearts on 1800 272 831 and we'll pop that number in our show notes too. Bravehearts also does a lot of advocacy and redress services for adult survivors of child sexual assault, as well as lobbying for improved legislative responses to child sexual assault in our community. These are some incredibly important services that Australia needs in order to keep our children safe and free from assault and exploitation. But here's the most important part. Bravehearts relies on community support and donations to continue their crucial work. So we, my friends, can all help out by becoming regular givers for as little as $5 a week. To donate or join the Bravehearts family as a regular giver, please go to braveheartsorg.au. Every Australian child deserves a life free of sexual assault and exploitation. Thank you so much to the incredible team at Bravehearts for protecting Australia's children today and every day. Grace, one of the more shocking elements of this case once it was made public were some of the headlines that came out that were a little fucked, to say the least, about some people calling this an affair. What was it like watching these headlines come up as it hit the press and you were anonymous? It was very confusing, actually, I think more so than anything, especially because I'd always wanted to help and protect other people. And then for that to be the reaction when I put myself through this so that other people could could be okay and then to be sort of ostracized and further degraded like that was sort of baffling to me I didn't understand and to me you know because it was such a clear case of of abuse it didn't make any sense that that sort of furthered my motivation to want to speak out because yeah I just realized like okay so there really is a a complete disconnect here there's a huge misunderstanding of, of what's going on and also too, like I don't hold grudges, and I'm not like a you know I'm not a vengeful person, and and I don't I don't see that those headlines were, like, you know, no individual is to blame. It's it's cultures, it's gaps in our cultures that previously existed. But but like I said, when you first asked me how I'm feeling, you know, like I'm just feeling so full of love and support and positivity because we're, we're creating this shift. You know, it's a different time to what it was 11 years ago, and to focus on that is. It isn't necessarily helpful. It's important that we look at those examples as being unhelpful examples, but, you know, like that's not the focus anymore. The focus is, oh, we've come so far and and how much further do we have to go? When did you decide that this was something that you wanted to speak publicly about? I mean, what you have done is my personal definition of courage. Why did you decide that you wanted to really fight for this and get your story out there? 
it wasn't a light bulb epiphany type of thing. It was always, I think, just building up. When I always, like I said, have an interest in educating people and helping contribute to progress in our society, especially on these sort of social topics, you know, and social justice, because all justice is social justice. But it really crystallized, I suppose, the decision to speak publicly about this after a series of other injustices in my, or pertaining to my case. It also involved injustices towards my mother, but injustices towards the whole community because of the way this predator was able to manipulate everyone, including institutions, beyond the school that I went to, but also the, the University of Tasmania, which is the only university in my state. So to give a little bit of context, my abuser was convicted of a crime that's now called the persistent sexual abuse of a child. It previously was maintaining a sexual relationship with a person under the age of 17, which through relentless campaigning we were able to amend so that it actually reflects the, the, the reality and the severity of the crime that was committed. But he was convicted of, of that crime and he was sentenced to two years and 10 months in prison. And this is including a charge of possession of child exploitation material because he was also found with you know, 28 multimedia files of child pornography on his computer. So for those two offences, he was he was charged with two years and 10 months in prison and he got out in a year and nine months on good behaviour. And just after he got out of prison in 2013, it must have been, or 2014, he applied to do a PhD at the University of Tasmania and he was granted a federally funded scholarship to do so and he was also put in student accommodation with fresh university students, both men and women who would have been 17, 18 years old, some of them. So so there was that. And at the same time, my mother, who comes from a very working class family who and who therefore actually didn't have the opportunity to study at university when she was younger, She was starting her degree in behavioural science at the university and then found out that my abuser was also on campus and she ended up dropping out because it goes without saying that it would make anyone uncomfortable. But also she was disappointed in the school for not protecting other students, you know, by allowing him to be there and and he is is a known predator who is remorseless. And then in 2015, while he was studying his PhD, my abuser went online on Facebook and boasted about getting to fuck me. He said it was awesome and enviable and that based on all the emails and tweets he'd received, he was, yeah, one of the most envied men in Australia. And that became news headlines again. And thankfully, actually, after that, I think people started to really change their perception and start to see like, oh no, this is a this is a person who's actually quite sick and a psychopath. So that that was helpful in that it contributed to this this positive shift in the direction of understanding victims and, and not protecting predators. But it was another injustice. So it was just sort of layer upon layer of injustice and it had come to my attention, it had been brought to my attention that other students at the school were uncomfortable with his presence there, that he was called out for predatory behaviour. Police had been called 
on him because he was being predatory in the university gym and other university facilities. I believe there was a yeah there was a petition that was started by the the women's collective at the university. Uh, that's when I made connection with journalist Nina Fennell, who's absolutely incredible. She's a sexual assault survivor herself, so she has a an understanding of this, you know, from that really like personal side. And uh, she's done some groundbreaking work. So yeah, I reached out to her, and and that's when we sort of started to really knuckle down and figure out how we can work together to to shed light on this issue. Grace, I want to ask you about Nina Fennell and the Let Her Speak campaign in a second, but I wanted to ask you first, having heard you kind of roll those things off your tongue, what your relationship with anger is like. Like I know you said before, you're not a particularly vengeful person. Do you ever experience anger or is it something that you sort of have learned to deal with? I mean, I'm a human being. We all experience emotions to varying degrees, but I wouldn't say no, I wouldn't say no that I'm an angry person. I think there's a there's a time and a place for anger, you know, when it's when it's measured and it's justified, you know, and when it's directed in the right way. I don't believe in directing anger towards individuals really. Anger served me well though in that it did actually allow me to come forward because had I not got to a point when I was 16 that my rage actually surpassed my crippling fear of this man, I don't know if I would have been able to speak out. But I certainly had a lot of, I had boiling rage towards him. In fact, the last interaction that I ever had with him was four days before I told the police what he'd done. I was in his office and I told him, for the, like I stood up to him for the first time because previously, I'd, like throughout the abuse, I'd been submissive. I'd just been whatever he wanted me to be and not really let on how much pain I was in except for a couple of times when he raped me that had been particularly violent. But I, I sort of always just copped it until this moment, this last moment where I talked, well, I didn't talk to him at all, I just yelled at him. <laughs> I just called him a monster and I, you know, I thought he should deserve to die and that I hoped he died and that, that I wanted nothing to do with him and I hated him for what he'd done to me. Oh, no, that's all right. I pointed to a photograph of his daughter that was um, sitting on his, beside his desk and, and I said, uh, the only reason I'm not going to speak out is because I don't want to hurt your family and I don't want to hurt my family in the way that you've hurt me. So in a sense, I lulled him into a false sense of security by saying that I wasn't going to speak out when, in fact, I did four days later because I was just full of rage. And, you know, I was, I'd been taking it out on myself. I, I was self-harming. I'd taken a kitchen knife to my thigh and I've got, I've got fuck carved down my left thigh, you know, which is something that people often ask about and, I try to laugh about it now, but, you know, it is what it is. So, yeah, I've experienced rage for sure, but I, I, I don't lean into it. Talk to us about Nina Fennell and going to her and talking to her about the fact that you didn't have a right to speak because of, I guess, gag laws in Tasmania and that you wanted to work on that. When Nina and I connected, neither of us were aware of this gag law in Tasmania, which is Section 194K of the Evidence Act. That hadn't been brought to our attention yet. We connected and I was living in the US at the time, so we didn't actually connect face-to-face, but we, we connected over the phone and we had several hours long conversations where we both opened up to each other and got to know each other and and realized that we both had the same motivations, we both had the same tenacity, we both had the same drive to help and educate others sort of above all else, at, you know, at any cost and both being prepared to be that kind of icebreaker or that one to make the first move. 
So it was a bit of a mutual fan club, I suppose. And Nina is just incredible. Like the work that she'd done prior to the work that she did with me is incredible and the work that she continues to do now is is, is incredible. And, you know, she should be praised at every opportunity for, for what she's done, not only for myself but for the 16 other campaign survivors who lent their stories and struggles to to the Let Her Speak campaign, both, you know, in Tassie and Victoria in, Northern, in the Northern Territory as well because there's still work to be done. But, yeah, so... It wasn't until after Nina and I had tirelessly compiled all of these articles, like I'd given her all of this material to work with, you know, all these examples of grooming, like lived experience examples of grooming and the lasting impacts on my life of all of this psychological manipulation and the physical abuse and and everything. And, And then right before we were about to sort of broadcast these, that's when we came across this law and Nina started the the campaign, the Let Her Speak campaign. So through the Let Her Speak campaign, which was joined by Mark Lawyers and End Rape on Campus and other campaign partners, through the campaign I was able to get a special exemption to the law and I was granted my own voice in April of 2019. But obviously true to true to my personal ongoing goal but also true to the goal of Let Her Speak it's about platforming others, so we kept we kept campaigning until the law was actually changed, which was in April of 2020. So that was a year, less than a year ago now. And since then, though, now that I have my voice, I'm using it in my own capacity. And so, you know, the work that the Let Her Speak campaign still has to do is work that pertains to other jurisdictions. You know, Victoria and the Northern Territory, and like I said off air, those laws that it's very complex legal territory. And I am admittedly not across it all. And I think that the debate around those particular issues should be dominated by other survivors whose stories are more relevant to those laws. For instance, in Victoria, you know, I don't have a deceased relative who's experienced sexual assault. And so that's not my story to weigh in on. My story is one of surviving child sexual abuse personally. And so, yeah, I'm now using my platform, my personal platform, to keep this conversation alive and to keep educating and to look for other ways that we can reform our legislation on a more general level, you know, at the federal level, working towards a more standardised sort of uniform approach to issues like sexual assault. At just 26 years old, you were named Australian of the Year. You have achieved so much in changing those laws that you touched on before, but your acceptance speech was incredibly, incredibly powerful and so many of our listeners sent it to us as well. You really resonated with so many young people and young women in particular. In that speech, one of your quotes was, when we share, we heal. What has the process of healing looked like for you, particularly over the last couple of years since your story has been made public? The process of healing for me really started when I was able to share my truth because truth is a, is is one of our highest values, I think, in society for a reason because it's so powerful. It allows us to be us. So when I was able to share my truth, it also encouraged other people to come forward as well. So there was the, the this sort of mutual healing of myself, of other individuals, and therefore of the collective and that's when I was really able to come back to who I was and who I was disconnected from because that's what predators are so successful at doing and I sort of touched on it before. They're not just successful at 
disconnecting us from our true genuine supports around us. They're, they're successful at disconnecting us from ourselves. And so by being allowed finally to reclaim my power, to reclaim my narrative and share that with other people so that they were able to better understand and foster empathy and feel welcome, like they had something to contribute as well through that, that's when the real healing started. So I guess, yeah, April of 2019, I remember hearing the news that I had been granted the exemption by the Supreme Court and I just I just was overcome with this relief like no other this it was I mean it was a huge metaphorical kind of breaking of the shackles and I wasn't ashamed anymore because I didn't feel like I needed to keep quiet that law that that gag law or or any structure like that any any law or policy that takes further power away from a victim of abuse which is a case of having power taken away from you any structure like that that reinforces that it just feeds into that abuse even more like the programming it just it just doubles down I guess on all of the the grooming tactics implemented by abusers it just it just feeds the self-blame the self-doubt and so yeah that's when I was really able to start healing. In that speech you also touched on running saying that you had gone from being anorexic to last year winning a marathon which is just nuts running a marathon and also winning one I do have to clarify though it wasn't a particularly competitive marathon let's be honest it wasn't oh like, no <laughs> no 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 no. <laughs> it was in Ross in a little town in Tasmania I did manage to crack the three hour mark but only by 30 seconds which was my goal to win it was a bonus but yeah no it was more about the symbolism of not really being able to walk after two the first two weeks that I spent in hospital I wasn't able to get out of bed. So, yeah, I went all, like, my muscles went dead. And so, yeah, going from that and then after that, having been abused and a lot of my memories, I've said before publicly, you know, like my memories of that time were punctuated by visions of me, you know, looking up at that ceiling because I was on my back on the floor, you know, and then the symbolism of, of then running a marathon, you know, whether I run it or not, the, the best part of running that marathon was being there amongst the community doing the same thing, this this incredible feat, this human capability to run nonstop for 42.2 kilometres. It's the symbolism of that, that I was there, that there were people cheering me on but cheering each other on and we were all the solidarity, you know, and actually a really special moment of that marathon, even more powerful symbolism in terms of my own personal transcendence and the journey from where I was 11 years ago to now, it was in the third lap. So this marathon was four laps of a 10 and a half K loop. So in the third or fourth lap, when I was really in a pain tunnel, you go through some real darkness when you run a marathon because it's a slog, right? The second female was actually a good 15 minutes behind me. So for most of the race, I was out there on my own. And right towards the end, I was joined, I was walled in by men, right? And I'm this tiny little like five foot four chick and all of a sudden these big tall men came on either side of me and they're running with me and they just, the love and the support that came out of these men because they're all saying, just keep going, we've got you, we've got you. And, you know, like 10 years ago to be surrounded by these tall men because my abuser was a tall man, he's, he's six foot four, two or three, I think, you know, he was a big, tall man, very domineering physically as well as emotionally and mentally. 
So to have that in that moment there, when I was in my darkest moment, struggling, just trying to keep going, to have these men come around me and offer this support, it was incredible. That's absolutely remarkable. What a beautiful story. Our final question for you, Grace, what is success to you? We ask everyone this question, but we're particularly interested to hear your insights. How do you define success in your own life? Success is sharing joy and success. It doesn't really matter what it is. You know, I think that I always try to remind people because one of the things that stops us, I think, from succeeding in society is is thinking that just because somebody else succeeds means that somebody has to lose. And I I just simply don't believe that. I believe in a win-win model in that, you know, you can get vicarious success by witnessing somebody else's success, even if that means that you come second in the race. You can shift your thinking to being just incredibly happy and full of joy for the person that beat you. You know, a win doesn't have to come at the expense of anything negative. So, yeah, it's whatever it is, you know, because we might not have a clear goal of, you know, what is perfection? Like, what are we aiming for? What's this clear-cut, rigid kind of, you know, what are the parameters of this end point that we're working towards? We might not know what that is, but so long as it's positive and everyone's welcome to participate in it and benefit from getting there. I think that's the aim. I think that's that's the sort of the point of life is that sharing in, in the magic and the successes, but also sharing in the in the failures as well. So long as we're there for each other, that's successful. Grace, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for always sharing, for doing all the sharing that you do. I can't imagine how exhausting it must be and also how much how tired you must be over the last few weeks. I think you need a holiday. <laughs> Grace, thank you so much. I could be doing this podcast from from bed. I could be in bed for all you know. <laughs> thanks so much guys thank you so much for listening to this in conversation episode of shameless with the incredible grace tame if you would like to follow grace on instagram she's at tame punk we also urge you to check out the work of brave hearts and support them in any way you can their website is bravehearts.org.au if this episode raised any issues for you, please do contact 1-800-RESPECT for confidential information, counselling and support. Thank you for listening to this episode. The number one way to support our show is by giving us a five-star review and clicking subscribe on Apple Podcasts or by following us on Spotify. Thanks so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday.